0: Welcome to the latest episode of the Dialogue Out Loud series. Today we're excited to have with us Tanner Davidson McAllister, a PhD student in Buddhist studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and a holder of a Master's of Theological Studies with an emphasis on Buddhist studies from Harvard Divinity School. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue at Journal of Mormon Thought. In his amazing new article, The Production of the Book of Mormon in Light of a Tibetan Buddhist Parallel, Tanner really expands the comparative materials for thinking about Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. He looks at a Tibetan Buddhist tradition of uncovering ancient buried texts and their miraculous translation with the help of supernatural beings and revelation. It really gets us thinking about religious comparison in exciting new ways. Join us as we chat with Tanner about his research and the implications of his work for understanding the discovery and translation of the Book of Mormon. Tanner Davidson McAllister, welcome. It's so nice to talk with you about your research. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks so much for having me on. Excited to be here. Absolutely, absolutely. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Tibetan Buddhist treasure tradition, and how you came to learn about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So how I came to learn about it, I mean, it was really by accident. Um, I was doing an undergraduate degree in religious studies um, and just became interested in Buddhism. And I was particularly interested in the transition of Buddhist ideas and cultures to the West in the early 20th century and how they had been transformed. Um, And I was writing an undergraduate thesis, this was at Utah State University, Um, and I was looking at a particular uh, tantric practice in Tibetan Buddhism that's called Chud. Chud literally means to cut, it's a practice of kind of severing your ego. Um, And I was comparing it with with how it had been taken up uh, by a dharma center in Colorado, um, in this practice that's no, now known as feeding your demons. Um, and the founder of the original Tibetan practice was this 11th century Tibetan Buddhist master named Chik Leptron. Um, so I was just digging around in like the 11th century Tibet, just doing research. And I really stumbled across this tradition um, of individuals who would discover uh, a, a text. They call it a terma, which literally means a treasure. Uh, they would often discover it after having had some kind of encounter with a supernatural being that then gave them uh, some instructions on how to discover this text and instructions on what to do with it ritually once discovered. Uh, the text is said to be to be encoded in a secret language. Um, and then they would translate it into, into Tibet. Um, and this came to be Um, kind of a a characteristic element of scripture production within a particular school of Tibetan Buddhism, which is known as the enigma or old school of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, And that's the tradition that my papers focusing on.
0: And that tradition runs for a relatively long time period. Can you kind of give us a little bit of the historical period where we start to see, when we start to see it, and, and how long it goes for?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So in Tibetan so buddhism enters tibet from india um possibly as early as the 7th century we think it really gets going in the 8th and ninth centuries and then there's a moment of, of religious political economic collapse in tibet that's often referred to as the dark period um and then it starts up again near the end of the 10th century into the 11th and 12th centuries you get more works of translation, more Buddhist missionaries coming from India. And it's at this time that we see a kind of distinct schools start to form in Tibet. Um, most of these schools are articulating their unique identity through reference to a Buddhist lineage that came from India. And they're often doing so polemically against whatever, in you know, a Buddhist traditions, had survived that dark period. And they start to polemically call those the enigma tradition, And through that polemics, the enigma tradition begins to emerge in its own right. And one of the ways that it argues for its legitimacy, contra these other schools, is by this act of discovering treasure texts that they then tied to, to uh, Buddhist teachers and missionaries back in the 8th century. Particularly... Um, a uh, figure named Padmasambhava, who's, who's I talk a lot about in the paper, often revered as kind of a second Buddha in the in the Nyingma tradition, who came to Tibet in the eighth century and
0: it was really foundational for for laying out the distinctive teachings of the school. So you discovered this as an undergraduate. You worked on it obviously uh, while you were um, studying with uh, for your master's degree. Mm-hmm. What first got you feeling like there were some similarities between the tradition that you were seeing and Joseph Smith? And what kinds of similarities did you start to see? Yeah. Yeah, great question.
1: Um, I mean, first, it was just the act of discovering some kind of object in the ground, claiming, hey, this had been put there by a religiously significant being hundreds of years ago in a secret language, and now I have the ability to translate it. And I I just remember encountering that as an undergrad thinking... I thought only Joseph Smith did that. I had no idea other people were doing that. Right. And of course, this is something that's not even just uh, also found in Tibetan Buddhist tradition. I mean, you find this in ancient Greece. You can find this in a lot of religious traditions. But that was just my first encounter. And then when I, when I went and was exploring the issue further at Harvard, I was particularly interested in and the ways in which these discoveries seem to happen amidst religio-political paradigm shifts, and to address key, both kind of religious and political, and issues of national identity within those contexts. And I wanted to really uh, tease out that comparison in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and the Mormon tradition. And then I quickly realized, I don't have the language skills to really produce knowledge in that area. So what I've been doing ever since then is studying uh, spoken Tibetan and classical Tibetan and other ancient languages that will help me do this project. Um, and then I got into the kind of the phenomenological issues that I deal with in the paper, which is which is particularly drawing on on a later uh, Tibetan Buddhist master who writes a text called the Wonder Ocean. Uh, this is somebody named Doju Chen in the 19th century. Who gets deep into the, the the kind of phenomenology of revelation within this tradition, and the and the ways in which material objects play a significant role in acting on the person who discovered the the text? And I thought, huh, you know, maybe there's something there when we think about the gold plates and their role in Joseph Smith translation that can add a new perspective. Um, I mean, the way that I really went about this is I was studying with um, a comparative theologian named Frank Clooney, um, who's written a really influential book. I think it's just called How to Do Comparative Theology. But he describes this model he calls the Exodus Redditist model, where you really dive into a tradition that is not your own, learn as much as you can, come out, and then look at your own religious tradition and say, hey, what looks different now? And so my work isn't a work of theology, but I really apply that to a kind of comparative religion model
0: in the way that I that I approach
1: the 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 Mormonism comparison.
0: Yeah, this is a great uh, a point to sort of fixate on for a moment here because it's obviously Joseph Smith doesn't know about this tradition, Uh right. there isn't any kind of direct influence. So right. how do you propose that we compare these two things you mentioned? Uh, you know a, a little bit about this but what what does it mean to compare two things that don't have a direct historical connection what what are we hoping to find there what what do we learn about both of them yeah yeah great question yeah
1: um you know so the first part of my paper I outline these what I call structural similarities and really that's just saying look that the content of these texts is not similar right the the the, the the geographical location, right? the temporal context, these are all totally different. But if you look at how these texts function within their traditions, they seem to be doing similar things, and they seem to be discovered in a similar way. And then I'm just saying, if we dive into the Tibetan Buddhist tradition for a second, and see how they're experiencing the world, then we can come out with just new conceptual possibilities, right? Right. Just when we think about what's possible for somebody to experience. And so then when I'm looking at Joseph Smith, I'm not thinking, oh, you know, because Tibetan Buddhists did this, he must have also done that, right? But when I look at E. Smith discovering a set of gold plates and claiming to translate it, the study of Tibetan Buddhism opens up what could be possible. Not based on any causal connection, but just conceptually, what could be possible, and then and then what I you know try to do in this paper, hopefully, it's successful. But it's to really go then deep into the primary sources and say, is this does this align with how Joseph Smith himself describes this experience, how his scribes talk about his experience? Is there something
0: compatible there? So this is a, a such a fascinating paper and and there's so much to say about it but one of the things that you really kind of focus on too is the longstanding scholarly debate about the nature of the gold plates about uh about how to understand them. can you describe a little bit uh that the debate about the gold plates and where your scholarship is sort of fitting where your scholarship is fitting into that
1: Yeah. Yeah, so that's deba- that debate is something that I've seen called the Book of Mormon Wars. Right? And it's basically the idea that because Joseph Smith isn't claiming to just have had a vision, to just experience something in his mind, because he's actually discovering a what he claims to be a real material object, right, something with engravings on it that he translates, that he must have either been doing that or he must have not been doing it. And when we say doing that, we mean literally translating the ancient document. Right. And not we usually need lying, or else he was just very confused. Right? And I'm saying that when and and there's a like, number of scholars I talk about in my paper, I mean a few, there's scholars like Anne Taves and Sonia Hazard, who have kind of broken down this dichotomy on their own. But I'm saying when we come out of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and we see that there seems to be a very similar revelatory mechanism, but you don't get these dichotomized options, then that opens up a new conceptual possibility to think about revelation in the context of Mormonism.
0: So how do you think this helps us to better understand uh, Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I I think it, it helps us to... talk about this, uh, this concept of, of translation, right? and we, we think about maybe Joseph Smith as somebody literally translating an ancient document, kind of engaged in an empirically verifiable task. But I'm trying to say may, maybe it's not so simple. Maybe Joseph Smith inhabited a world that is not so easy for us to grasp. Maybe when he uses these terms It's a little bit more subtle, and so then I'm saying we can now open up a space where you know I bring in topics of like the kind of materialist agency, how the material world acts on us, has a and has kind of unpredictable effects on us that then are then particular individuals are able to then present in an
0: effective way that creates meaning. It's such a fascinating contribution to this longstanding conversation. As you mentioned, there's a, a lot of scholarly energy in the last decade or so around this. Uh, we have future works so that we know are coming out by other high-profile scholars on this topic. I really hope that your piece is widely read and uh, and that people grapple with uh, the the insights that you bring with this comparative approach that we really haven't seen r- really rigorously before in Book of Mormon studies. So it's really really exciting. Congratulations on this great work.
1: Well, thank you so much. And thank you for, 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 for entertaining the work. And yeah, I
0: hope that, I hope that it generates further discussion. We'll move forward. Absolutely. We hope that our listeners have enjoyed this conversation and have learned something about new approaches to thinking about the gold plates and the translation of the Book of Mormon. If you'd like to learn more, we encourage you to check out Tanner Davidson McAllister's article, The Production of the Book of Mormon in Light of a Tibetan-Buddhist Parallel in the Winter 2022 issue of Dialogue, and to explore other resources on this topic there. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues, and don't forget to leave us a review or get in touch with any comments or questions. We hope you'll tune in to future episodes of our podcast and be sure to check out the whole range of shows in the Dialogue Podcast Network. I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought and this is Dialogue Out Loud. My eyelashes were subtly coated in matte black mascara. On my cheeks, a light dusting of dusty rose-colored blush powder, just enough that I could feel comfortable and almost myself.
1: On Tuesday, my visiting teacher said she knew I was really busy at work and brought over a casserole for dinner, the chief ingredient of which
0: was zucchini. Maybe it isn't the Lamanite who needs to forsake the incorrect traditions of our forefathers. Maybe it's the belief of racial hierarchy that we need to forsake.
1: Never learn to play the organ, the old woman told me. You might get a different calling from time
0: to time. But make no mistake, once you get on the path of becoming a ward organist, that's what you'll be until you die. Each year, we bring you even more great fiction, personal essays, and poetry taken from the pages of our quarterly journal. We couldn't do this without your support. So thank you for reading, listening, and supporting Dialogue with your donations, subscriptions, or by simply leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. For more content like this, or to get involved with Dialogue events, go to dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue Podcast Network.